Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, a story's told of a man who went shopping with his wife at the local department store. They went to the department store. They had to purchase a big piece of luggage uh, and a cooler. So they found that stuff. And then as the man was waiting for his wife to finish some shopping in the department store, he was lugging around this, uh, this cooler and this uh, piece of luggage and looked for a place to sit. So he found a little bench uh, by the women's shoe department. A store associate asked if he could be of any assistance. And the guy said, no, thank you. I'm good. I'm just waiting for my wife to finish shopping. At that point... Another man sitting nearby chimed in and says, hey, I'm waiting for my wife too, but I never thought to bring a cooler filled with food in an overnight bag. (laughs) See, the reality is no one likes to wait. We don't like waiting in lines at grocery stores, which is why we probably spend more time walking up and down looking for the shortest line. We don't like waiting at red lights. We don't like waiting in traffic. Driving here this morning, there's this one, ro- one road off a of lacy road, it's, you know, it's a big sign that says no turn on red and you kind of like still want to turn right even though because there's like never cars coming on a Sunday morning, but you don't. I hate waiting. And for a lot of us, one of the most dreaded places is the waiting room. We're an impatient people who don't like to wait. We find waiting tiring and boring. Uh, we perceive waiting to be a waste of time. At least that's how... Um, We understand it in our fast food, fast pace, fast everything society. We respond to waiting even more negatively than people even did in the past. One author wrote this. There's a science magazine called Nautilus, and this is what it said in there. It said, she said, slow things drive us crazy because the fast pace of society has warped our sense of timing. Things that our great-great-grandparents would have found miraculously efficient now drive us around the bend. Patience is a virtue that's been vanquished in the Twitter age. The accelerating pace of society resets our internal timers, which then go off more often in response to slow things, putting us in a constant state of rage and impulsiveness. And see, when we think of waiting, right, our minds tend to all of a sudden go to negative thoughts or or negative feelings about uh, whatever it is that we have to wait for. We don't like waiting. Waiting is difficult. And for the Christian... Perhaps the most difficult kind of waiting is waiting on God in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of challenging circumstances. There's the college graduate waiting for God to open the door to uh, a job. There's uh, the, the family that's been praying desperately to God, waiting on him to respond and to give that husband and wife, that that child that they've been praying so desperately for. There's the single person waiting to see what 
God has in store for him or her, and hoping it's marriage. There's a, uh, there, there are so many seasons of waiting, and chances are every, almost every single one of us in this room are in one of those seasons of waiting, waiting for something. And these seasons are difficult, and because they're difficult, we view them as nothing more than spiritual waste. Right? Why is God wasting so much time with us? We view all, the, all of our waiting as delays and, and detours that we just have to suffer through until f- God finally shows up and pulls us out from that waiting period. The problem, though, is that God never seems to be in a hurry. It sometimes feels like we're kids again, playing red light, green light, only this time with God. Right? It's, it's as if we feel like we're progressing a little bit, and then it almost it's as if God turns around and says, red light, and you stopped again, and you're waiting. At least that's how it feels. So what are we to do when we feel stuck in that season of waiting? How should we move forward in doing something when God seems to be absent or distant, when he seems to be doing nothing? Enter Old Testament Joseph. So we've been studying the life of Joseph. See, one thing that the story of Joseph reveals is just how necessary it is to wait on God. Time and time again, you see Joseph waiting on God without knowing why or what God was going to do. When Joseph was 17 years old, God revealed his plans for Joseph's future, but God didn't reveal the timing of it. God never said when it was going to happen, how it was going to come about. So today, as we jump in to the first half of Genesis chapter 41, what we're going to learn is that God never wastes our waiting. God never wastes one moment of our waiting. He's sovereign over every step of our lives. He's sovereign over every step of your life, just as he was with Joseph. He's actively working in all of your moments of waiting. He's actively at work in all of the roadblocks, in all of the detours, in all of the U-turns. He's actively at work even when your life comes to a screeching halt. So it might seem to you as God's ignorance or God's idleness is anything but that because God never wastes your waiting. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 41. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can uh, open up the Bayside Chapel app on there. You can find the Bible link, follow along that way. They'll be on the screen. But also in the app, there's a cool little notes feature where you could uh, kind of fill in some blanks and take some notes and then send them to yourself. So a bit of background before we jump into the passage. Now, Joseph was introduced to us in Genesis chapter 37, and he was introduced to us as a 17-year-old boy um, who was the favored son of his father, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was his favorite. So when he was a teenager, Joseph had two dreams. And what these dreams represented was that his father, his mother, and all his brothers were going to bow down to him. Cool dream until you start telling your father, your mother, and all your brothers that they're going to bow down to you. So obviously, if you remember, Joseph's brothers get pretty ticked. They want to kill him. They decide not to kill him, but to sell him off uh, as a slave instead. So he's sold as a slave. He's brought into Egypt. And then he starts uh, working in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a captain of the guard, one of the military leaders. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. He ends up rising some of the ranks, and you see him just completely devoted to God um, and, and to his own uh, fidelity and integrity. Uh, and then you see then he gets accused by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife accuses him of sexual harassment. So then it's even worse than when he began because now, he, now he's no longer a slave, but then he gets sent to prison. So he's a slave in prison. 
One day then, while he's in prison, we saw this in Genesis chapter 40 last week, when he's in prison, all of a sudden the prison door opens, two new prisoners are brought in, one is uh, the cupbearer or, or the, the butler, um, and then the other is the baker, the, the Pharaoh's chief baker. They each have dreams, they share their dreams with Joseph, and Joseph offers to uh, interpret their dreams for him, but he's very clear to say, it's not me who will interpret it, God will offer me the, your interpretation. So Pharaoh then restores the cupbearer to his position, just as Joseph said, and, and the baker has his uh, head chopped off, just as Joseph said. Um, but if you remember, chapter 40 ends with Joseph looking at the cupbearer and saying, hey, when you get released, please remember me. Put in a good word with Pharaoh. I would really like to get out of here. And we're told that the cupbearer forgets Joseph, never remembers him. So he remains in the lowest depths of humiliation in that prison as a slave, and he's there for two long, grueling years, a Hebrew slave in Egypt. That is, until Pharaoh has a dream of his own that needs some interpretation. So let's jump into Genesis chapter 41, starting at verse one. It says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. So you get the picture here. Pharaoh is sleeping in his Egyptian palace, sleeping on his high thread count Egyptian cotton sheets, and he has this really weird dream of cannibalistic cows. Now understand that uh, Egyptian pharaohs were thought to kind of live on the edge of the divine realm. They viewed themselves and they were viewed by those in Egypt as a, as a god of sorts, a god incarnate. Um, so they took dreams very seriously because they believed that uh, the, the gods, the other gods, were communicating uh, messages to them in their dreams. So in his dream, Pharaoh sees uh, seven fat and happy cows emerge from the Nile, and he, they come out, they eat some grass, but then, followed right behind them, are seven ugly cows, thin cows. They're malnourished. They stand next to the healthy ones. They end up attacking them and devouring them and eating them. So now Pharaoh awakes, and you got to imagine, he's wondering to himself at this time, what's going on? Why am I having these dreams? What are the gods trying to communicate to me? What's going to happen next? This is scaring me. I need to find an answer. What does this bloody burger dream really mean? But before too many questions cross his mind, he drifts off to sleep again. Verse 5, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain Plump and good were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So as soon as Pharaoh drifts off to sleep again, he has this second weird dream. He sees seven healthy and plump ears of grain growing, and then suddenly he sees seven more ears of grain growing, except these ones are, are thin. They're shriveled by the, by the dry, scorching heat and the wind, and these uh, decrepit, uh, cannibal um, ears of grain attack and devour the other healthy grain. So Pharaoh again wakes up startled by his dream. Verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. 
And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh wakes up from these dreams and, you know, maybe hoping that, all right, when it's morning, I'll feel better. It's all this stuff will go away. I'm not going to feel anything bad, but he wakes up and he feels troubled. They see these dreams are pretty disturbing. They caused him to fear. They caused him to panic. He was so shook up by this dream that he assembles all the advisors in Egypt, all the magicians, um, anybody who might be able to offer him some advice, all these wise men, um, in hope that they're going to be able to interpret his dreams. But the problem is all the wealth and all the wisdom of the world still wasn't enough for this pagan ruler to understand the things of God. So the king's court grinds to a screeching halt. Fortunately, though, this predicament uh, that's going on in the court finally jogs the memory of the cupbearer who forgot about Joseph. And he recalls his experience with Joseph two years earlier when he was locked up. Verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So the cupbearer tells, reminds Pharaoh what happened a couple years earlier when Pharaoh put him and the chief baker in prison. Of course, the cupbearer does some uh, selective editing here of actually what happened, right? He failed to mention to Pharaoh that the Hebrew never actually claimed, that Joseph never actually claimed to interpret dreams himself. Um, he made it very clear that it was God who was going to interpret the dreams. Um, and then he also makes it seem that he took the initiative in reaching out to Joseph and finding Joseph to interpret his dreams, when really it was Joseph was the one who offered to do that. Um, and of course, he failed to mention how quickly he forgot Joseph when he got out of prison. He left him there for two years. But nevertheless, Pharaoh wastes no time. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So Joseph, who's now pushing uh, almost 30 years old, remember he was sold as a slave when he was 17, so he's been there for almost 13 years now. He's been treated like garbage, and he's been wasting away for a couple years in prison. But we sense not even a hint of bitterness or, or anger uh, in, in Joseph. None of it. None, no unfaithfulness. And now that the timing has come for God to get Joseph out of prison, it happens really quick. Almost in an instant, Joseph is physically transformed from Joseph, Joseph the Hebrew to Joseph the Egyptian, right? Hebrew men wore beards, Egyptians didn't. So uh, Joseph, would, they would have had his face shaved and it's possible they would have even have had his uh, entire head shaved. So he looked nothing like a Hebrew anymore. So he's shaved, he, he's sanitized, he's Egyptianized, and then he's presented to Pharaoh. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes here for a second. One second, he's living in a rotten, filthy prison, hot, humid, 
definitely stinky. The next, he's standing before Pharaoh in the splendor of the beautiful Egyptian palace and architecture. Now, this could have easily been very intimidating for Joseph. It certainly could have would have been very tempting for Joseph. Joseph taking in all the the new scents and sights that he was not given the past two years. He he sees all of this, the serene beauty, the lush Nile River, all of this, and he could have easily been allured by everything around him. He could have used this as an opportunity to once and for all promote himself to make sure he didn't end up back in prison because he keeps uh, doing the right thing and he's getting thrown into the worst places, so maybe this was a time I'm not going to do the right thing and maybe finally I'll be all right. After all, Pharaoh is essentially flattering him. He's saying, nobody can do it. None of my magicians. But I heard you can do it. So how does Joseph respond? Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, I love this. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, without a thought, Joseph corrects Pharaoh by taking the spotlight off of himself and pointing it where it belongs on God. I love what uh, one pastor said and commentator, Art Kent Hughes, he said this about the scene. He said, Joseph was all steel. Observe carefully that he told Pharaoh, who himself was considered to be a God incarnate, that God, Elohim, would explain his dream. Thus, to Pharaoh's face, Joseph asserted that his God was superior to and sovereign over the gods of Egypt. Joseph's theological knowledge rose high against the face of worldly power. Joseph's speech to Pharaoh was the same here as it was to the prisoners in the pit. In prison, he declared, do not interpretations belong to God? And here he declares, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph had not changed one whit in his trip from the pit to the palace. Those 13 years of preparation were now paying huge dividends. Through Joseph, God was advertising and asserting himself in Egypt. What a man of godly character and and godly dependence Joseph truly is. He unflinchingly responded to Pharaoh, not sure how Pharaoh was going to take it, but Pharaoh doesn't seem to mind because he then goes on to unload his dreams onto Joseph, starting in verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So, Pharaoh tells Joseph all about his dreams. It's clear that Pharaoh is greatly disturbed by what's going on here. It's clear that he's alarmed that there's not a single person in all of his kingdom who can offer an interpretation and explain the meaning of these dreams to him. So you have this this supposed God-man of Egypt beginning uh, to tremble and, and fear under this helplessness that he's experiencing. And after all, he is a mere man. He's not a god or a demigod. 
Whereas Joseph's God, the one true God, is the only almighty one. And Joseph makes it a point to make sure that Pharaoh understands that Joseph's God is the truly divine one who knows all things past, all things present, and all things future, including the dreams of men and their meanings. See, left to himself, Joseph can no more interpret the Pharaoh's dreams than any of the magicians or wise men could. But he's not left to himself. See, notice how Joseph's response to Pharaoh is completely God-centered. You see uh, Joseph invoking God at the beginning of his speech, in the middle of the speech, and at the end of his speech, starting in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt." The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So Joseph reveals to Pharaoh that these uh, seemingly two separate dreams he has are really one dream. They have the same exact meaning. Um, They're not separate. And Joseph is quick to point out that God is the one behind Pharaoh's dreams. He's disclosing, God is disclosing to Pharaoh what's going to happen very soon in the near future. Joseph's God-centered response announced to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt that the one true God is sovereign, not just over Israel, not just over Joseph, but over all of Egypt, over Pharaoh, over everybody in the universe. And there's nothing that mere Pharaoh can do to control any of this. One commentator explained it this way. says, the future in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced to the king of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. In this passage, it's clear that Pharaoh can cause no future, nor can he resist the future that God will bring. And then... The meaning of the dream is made quite clear. There's going to be seven bountiful years of harvest, followed by seven um, years of bad harvest, poor harvest, seven years of bounty, seven years of famine. Seven years of famine, though, was almost unheard of in Egypt. It it happened uh, rarely. It did happen, but very, very rarely, um, because there are some historical records that talk of this happening uh, once or twice in Egypt. But it was very unusual because the Nile could, could really be counted on every year for, the, the, for the, the, the river to flood and for, to moisten all the fields and deposit rich silt in all the, the soil there. So, having explained what God is going to do, Joseph then calls for action. And he even proposes to Pharaoh uh, what can be done to ease the effects of the coming famine. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. 
That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph already gave Pharaoh uh, some knowledge, right, about what was going to happen based on his dreams, but it doesn't stop there. See, Joseph begins to apply wisdom to that knowledge, and there's a difference between the two. See, knowledge tells you what's going to happen. Wisdom uh, tells you what you're going to do about it. So Joseph, as a man of true wisdom, understood that preparation for the famine would require proper planning and oversight and leadership. So he suggested that Pharaoh appoint some people uh, to lead this charge, put them in the cities, and let them uh, collect the food and save them in the cities over the upcoming, over those seven bountiful years. And it's going to be a 20% tax, so so one-fifth. And that food's going to get reserved, stored. So when the famine does come, there's going to be enough to distribute. And then, as for what happens next, we'll have to wait till next week. But for now, for today, after seeing Joseph wait for 13 years and seeing him the last two years just apparently rotting away in prison, what this passage has been showing us all along is that God never wastes our waiting. God never wastes our waiting. At 17 years old, God gave Joseph a dream, and Joseph had to wait on God to bring that dream full circle. He was waiting for God to intervene when his brothers captured him and wanted to kill him. He waited for God to step in when they sold him into slavery. He waited for God to move as he spent years working in Potiphar's house. He waited for God to vindicate him when he was falsely accused of rape. He waited for the cupbearer to remember him. Much of Joseph's life was spent waiting. And one of the things that he really seemed to understand was that God was very active and was powerfully at work in the midst of the waiting. Joseph didn't look at all this time spent waiting as as a negative thing. He didn't just view it as something he had to just grin and bear. He understood waiting to be a good thing, a necessary thing that God used for his good, that God was using to grow him. Joseph was constantly making the decision to focus on the person of his faith and not the object of his wait. I'll say that again. Joseph made the decision time and again to focus on the person of his faith, not the object of his wait. Because he focused on God, his times of waiting were greatly used by God. God never wasted one second of Joseph's waiting, and he never wastes one second of ours. We see at least two ways God uses our times of waiting. Here's the first one. Waiting on him cultivates godly character. Waiting on God cultivates godly character. Joseph came to Egypt as a 17-year-old boy, and now he's a 30-year-old man. Now, in spite of some of the amazing turning points in Joseph's life, we can still conclude that much of his life was spent waiting on God. But in those 13 years, God developed into Joseph's life, into Joseph's heart, uh, the roots, the deep roots of patience, the deep roots of peace, the deep roots of faith, the deep roots of integrity, the deep roots of wisdom. In those long 13 years, through all of the betrayals, all of the temptations, all of the shackles, all of the injustices, all of the struggles, even all of the months of God's silence, through all of it, God was at work refining and preparing Joseph for what was about to come next. Now, sure, to all outward appearances, Joseph wasted his time. It was a waste of time being stuck there in that prison for those years. It was a waste of time being a slave. But in reality... 
None of it was a waste. God hadn't wasted any of it, not even a single moment to develop Joseph's character and to prepare him. There's this little book called Waiting on God, What to Do When God Does Nothing. And Dr. Wayne Stiles is the author, and he shows just how necessary this time of waiting was for Joseph. Listen to what he writes. He says, during the past 13 years, Joseph had become fluent in the Egyptian dialect. Through two different positions of responsibility, he'd learned how to harvest abundant crops, to manage a large staff, to lead, to organize, to do a lot with a little, to deal with difficult people, and he had done it all well with God's blessing. Others intended evil for Joseph, but Joseph learned to see the bigger picture. God was at work. He intended it all for good. And Joseph was learning to wait on God. We know this because before this moment, the last words we heard from Joseph's lips requested the cupbearer to appeal Joseph's case to Pharaoh. And yet when Joseph stood before Pharaoh two years later, the young Hebrew made no personal request. He said nothing of his kidnapping or of his false imprisonment, and he had earlier to the cupbearer. Somehow, In the past two years of waiting, Joseph had learned that God would bring about his will in his time and in his way. He needed no help, not even from those in powerful government positions. So what is it that you're waiting for? What's been the cry of your heart that seems like it's going out and falling on divinely deaf ears? Whatever it might be that you're waiting for, understand that God is there and that God wants to work on you, in you, through you in the midst of that season of waiting because it's in the midst of those seasons of waiting where God begins to apply all of those biblical uh, character qualities to our lives. For example, hope. Hope requires waiting. If you don't wait, then there's not gonna, you're not going to learn to hope. The biblical quality of faith is all about waiting. So much uh, of, of, of even the, the fruit of the Spirit is about waiting, right? Love is about waiting because love is patient. Right? Patience is all about waiting. Faithfulness and self-control demand waiting. Peace requires waiting. So many of the character qualities that God wants to develop deep in us are developed in seasons of waiting. By waiting on God, what we do is we affirm that he is sovereign and that we're not. We trust him, that he knows the end from the beginning and that he sovereignly directs all of history, including your personal history, to his good purposes. I love the illustration one person used to express this truth. He wrote this. He said, my wife's aunt Gladys has always had a little apple orchard at her home. But this year, when we paid her a visit, I couldn't help but notice the huge harvest of apples. The branches hung heavy, and some were cracking with the weight of abundance. Never in many years had anyone seen such a harvest. When I asked her why, she told me that last year there was a late frost in the spring and that all the buds froze. When that happens, Gladys said, an apple tree does a miraculous thing. It stores up its energy in thousands of small bumps or nodules called seons. All that energy pulsates through that network of seons until the spring of the following year, and then bam, you have an exploding riot of buds as an apple tree unleashes all that stored up energy. And then he concluded with this. He said, Gladys's description made me think about our spiritual lives. Sometimes the harsh frosts in life Cancer, divorce, bankruptcy, trauma, grief, depression. They cause our hearts to freeze in weight. 
But at the core of the Christian faith, we also live with an incredible promise. In and through Christ, there will be an abundant harvest in our lives. God's power is pulsating under the gnarly bark of this world and even our bodies. In Christ, we're being formed into a small nodule of living hope. During certain seasons of our life, we feel our hearts waiting, longing, and even aching for those frozen places to burst into life. Our living hope is that one day all of this stored-up glory will be unleashed in a joyful riot of splendor. So whatever you might be waiting for, whatever you're waiting on God to pull you from, whatever it is that your season of waiting might be, be encouraged that God is using this season, wants to use this season to cultivate Christ-likeness in you. So don't opt for the fast pass option through waiting. Let God keep forming you. Let him keep molding you. Let him keep changing you and transforming you into the image and likeness of his son. And one day all that expectant waiting will burst forth, as the article said, and be unleashed in a joyful riot of splendor. God never wastes your waiting. He uses your waiting to cultivate godly character within you. And here's the second thing. Waiting on him deepens godly dependence. Waiting on God deepens our dependence on him. See, to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of Joseph was his deep, deep dependence on God. He wasn't a self-made man who uh, worried about promoting himself and using his own wit and wisdom to advance in his life. He was a person who knew how utterly lost he was without God. And you don't once see Joseph trying to manipulate any of the situations for his benefit, even for his own relief. He simply trusts God will bring about his will in his time, and he's going to enjoy his intimacy and relationship with God in the meantime. The thing is, you see this time and again throughout all the scriptures. See, it's not just Joseph. Almost any person of faith you go to Hebrews 11, you see the, whole, the hall of fame of faith. There was waiting involved in every single one of those lives. God uses long seasons of waiting to teach his children to trust him more. As one author asked, was it really necessary to leave Joseph rotting in an Egyptian prison cell for such an extended period? Was it vitally important that the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years and Noah drift on a flood for months in a boat that took perhaps a century to build? Were 25 years really necessary to get Abraham from the promise to pampers? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes to all of these. So it is with your life. God uses, sovereignly uses the waiting seasons of your life to teach you to trust him more so you can depend on him. When you wait on God, you affirm that he is in control and that you're not. When you wait on him, you affirm that you're trusting his timetable, not your own. When you wait on him, you affirm that your entire being you believes that God will bring about all the good that he promises in your life, in your family's life, and ultimately all the good that he promises when that trumpet sounds and when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to take his children home. God created you to live in dependence on him. Which means if you refuse to wait on him, you're living in rebellion and independence against the one who created you and calls you his own. If you insist on instant gratification, even 
for good things, you're going to minimize and overlook the infinite wisdom of God's sovereignty, right? The wisdom that sees beyond the next five. We can't even see beyond the next five minutes. God can. He can see beyond the next five minutes, the next five hours, the next five days, the next five centuries. It's all the same to him. And we want to insist on our own way. He knows better. So trust him in your waiting. He won't waste any of it. And if you feel like you're in a pit, if you feel like you're in a prison, remember that God does some of his best work in prisons. Literally, too. Think about John Bunyan. He goes to prison, he comes out of prison, and he's got Pilgrim's Progress with him. An incredible book. And think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He goes to prison and he comes out with The Cost of Discipleship, a discipleship book that has formed deeply so many followers of Christ over the years. Chuck Colson's another man. He goes to prison and then out comes the prison fellowship that has impacted thousands and thousands of lives across the world. See, if a literal prison can't keep God out, you better believe that whatever prison or pit you feel like you're in can't keep God out either. Maybe this is why his word encourages you over and over and over again to wait, to wait on him. Wait on him. Maybe this is why Psalm 27 tells you, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Psalm 37, which says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Psalm 38, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Or Psalm 130 says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Or Isaiah 40. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And ultimately, church, what we really look forward to is what's written in Titus, where it says, we wait for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to follow Jesus means that we yearn at all times, in all ways, for his return. From this perspective, really, the entire Christian life, then, is one of waiting. Church, wait on God. He will never waste a moment of your waiting. God never wastes our waiting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you that uh, you are the God of providence, that you set history up exactly as you want it to go. Lord, and you are sovereign over all of the events in history, all of the events of our lives. Lord, and you are good. God, thank you that you're always at work, always working, within us, always working around us. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in here, God, that we would learn to see those times of waiting differently. Lord, that we would see them uh, biblically, theologically, as, as your word does. Lord, not as burdens, not as something negative, but as something to be cherished, as, as seasons of growth and development and maturity. Lord, seasons where you minister to us and where you teach us more about yourself And God, I pray for anybody in here in one of those 
seasons of waiting, wondering when it's gonna end. Lord, I pray that you would give them all the faith they need, all of the hope they need, all of the perseverance they need, all of the endurance they need to remain steadfast and faithful to you. Lord, not viewing or living in those seasons, uh, cowering in, in, in fear and hopelessness, Lord, but confident, knowing that you're gonna cause all of it to work for good and that in the meantime, you call us to your side and you call us to trust you. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who might be waiting for that moment of salvation. Lord, that even now, in the silence of this time or in the song to follow, Lord, that the the cry of their heart would be, save me, Lord Jesus, for I am a sinner who can't save myself. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you were buried and that three days later you rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death. And you apply that new life to me the moment I put my faith in you. Lord, for anybody waiting for that, may now be the time. God, we love you. We are so grateful that you are always with us. Lord, in the deepest, darkest valleys and on the highest, brightest mountaintops, you are there and you call us your own. Teach us to wait and thank you for being active and working through all of our waiting. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, all God's children said, 